The Eagle and Child, Episode 40. Mere Christianity, Book 4, Chapter 10. Nice people or new men? Hello, and welcome to The Eagle and Child, the hallowed pub of the Inklings. This is a podcast where each week, my friend Matt and I share a beer and discuss the writings of the author known to the world as Clive Staples Lewis, or C.S. Lewis, or just as Jack to his friends. My name is David, and once again, I'm joined by my very nice co-host, Matt. Although, as we're about to learn in this chapter, what's important is not how nice I am, (laughs) but how nice I would be if it was not for Christianity. Or how nice you wouldn't be. Or that's even more accurate, how nice I wouldn't be. And also how nice you could be if you let it fully rain in your life. (laughs) Yes, that's the true answer, how nice I could be. That is an interesting thing to reflect on. If it wasn't for my Christian faith, how has it transformed the way I treat people? I don't know if this is arrogant or prideful, but I, I believe I can definitely say in many situations it's helped me become a gentler, kinder person than I normally would be. For me, I think it's more of a watchdog. I think I'm generally quite amenable, but I think my faith stops me from being really nasty when I'm really irritated. I was going to literally say, if I had to be honest with you, David, my assessment would be you're the type of individual where you are very uh, kind, but you can tell when you're bubbling on the inside and when things are (laughs) annoying you because you're very particular, not in a bad way. You have high standards of everything in life, of yourself, of what you do, of the people around you. And so I can tell personally in the things when I'm interacting with you, when things are bubbling, but then I can also tell when you bite your tongue and you don't say anything. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I've got to get a little better at faking it, but okay, I think that's okay. (laughs) You're not fooling me. (laughs) That's another thing. (laughs) Well, for the quote of the week this time, I was actually the one that put forward a quotation because I was just reading Francis Chan's book, Crazy Love. And because Matt's been a little bit lazy these last few weeks and I pick it like last minute, so I think David was trying to cover my... uh... As you've already said, I'm very particular but I try and be Christian. (laughs) The real reason is since I moved to New York, I forgot my Lewis quote book, actually. There's only so many quotes. If you you Google C.S. Lewis quotes, there's only so many they show online, whereas my quotable Lewis book had thousands indexed by, if I search faith, here's 100 related to faith. So that's how I could come up with all these. So when I'm back in Michigan in a month, I'm going to make sure I grab that and put it in my backpack so I have that again. And since I picked out this one, I'd like to read it. I think sometimes we assume that, if we're nice, people will know that we are Christians and want to know more about Jesus. But it doesn't really work that way. I know a lot of people who don't know Christ and are really nice people. Nicer and more fun to be with, in fact, than a lot of Christians I know. There has to be more to our faith than friendliness, politeness, and even kindness. I have to say... When I was looking through what we were going to discuss today, and I saw you put this quote in, this book, probably more than any book, was influential in the whole entire direction of my life. So the short answer is I got this book in high school, neglected it for years, put it in the side of my car, and complete God moment. Fast forward to middle of college when I spent 10 weeks in Nicaragua, I'm leaving, jumping on a plane, 
And as I'm getting out of my car, as I'm getting dropped off the airport, I see the book and I think, you know what? You can never have enough English in a country where I'm about to go and have to speak Spanish completely for 10 weeks. And so I grab the book, not thinking much of it, read it, fall in love with it, because it really challenges you to think about a crazy version of love, like this extreme love of love your neighbor as yourself. And the biggest takeaway I got from it was he asks himself, how do you love yourself? And he, and he, he takes one part of it that stuck out to me. There's more to the book was the financial side of it. And he goes, when you're spending on yourself, how much are you giving to other individuals that have less? That challenged me because I spend a lot on myself and I don't spend as much on other people. So who do I love more than myself? And that's not to say that you have to give away half of what you have or spend the same amount. Obviously, everyone's financial situations differently. But I was definitely buying luxuries on myself when other people are going without. But fast forward, my future employer read this book and I I chatted with him, didn't know I was going to work for him. And he said this book was influential in his life. And I go, are you kidding me? I just read this book. And so we bonded over this. That brought me out to San Diego And that's when I fell in love with the Catholic faith, the church community, met David Bates, this podcast. Very important. Very important. So if this book didn't happen in my life, this podcast would not be happening. It has been a long time since I've read a contemporary book that's blown me away in the way that this one did. It's definitely a book that you shouldn't read unless you're willing to feel very uncomfortable afterwards. You know, we've recommended The Great Divorce Individuals. Let's let's recommend this one. This is a fantastic one. Absolutely. And uh, let's toast with our Bacardis and Coke today. One of my favorite drinks. Cheers. Oh, that is good. All right. Today we are getting down to the question of the ages. If Christianity is true, why are all Christians not obviously nicer than non-Christians? In response to this, Lewis says that part of the question is reasonable and part of it's a bit bonkers. So, first of all, the reasonable part. He says that if someone's conversion to Christianity produces no improvement in the man's outward actions, then we've pretty much got to conclude that his conversion was largely imaginary. He says, feelings and insights and interest in religion mean nothing if our actual behavior doesn't change. And after all, Jesus himself told us that we need to look at the fruit of the tree in order to discern the tree. And something else that's worth keeping in mind is that when we fail to live up to our Christian calling, to the moral standard that Christ calls us to, we cause other people to doubt the truth of Christianity. And this is no better exemplified than in the recent church scandals. Now the unreasonable part. What this question assumes is that you can neatly divide Christians and non-Christians perfectly into those two categories. And then, because of that, you should be able to say, look, the Christians are this niceness, and the non-Christians are this niceness. But we know that there's many flaws in this assumption. And the first one is, few people are 100% Christian, and few people are 100% non-Christian. In fact, there's typically a spectrum that we all fall on. And Lewis identifies a number of different groups. Yes. I mean, the first one, for example, there's those that are ceasing to be Christian. And so they might still call themselves a quote-unquote Christian, but through their journey is taking them away from it. He even rather cheekily remarks that some of these people are clergymen. 
This one particularly strikes home for me because for several years when I was back in England, I did hospital visiting ministry. So anybody that marked themselves down as Catholic on their entry sheet, I would go and visit them on Saturday night to visit them, talk to them, give them some stuff to read and ask them if they wanted communion the following day. And it was really a ministry to fallen away Catholics, people who didn't go to church, probably largely disbelieved most tenets of the faith, but they still regarded themselves as Catholic. If somebody asked them, what are you? Oh, they would say, oh, I'm Catholic. But there was no real impact in their life. Hopefully along that journey, you met some of the second group, Lewis points out, those becoming Christian, Mm -hmm. or in your case, more coming towards the Catholic faith. And so they don't call themselves yet a Christian, but they're on that journey. Then you have a third group, those who are unknowingly becoming a Christian. They're very attracted to Christ, but they don't actually yet realize that themselves. There's these individuals, I actually can think about them. They're the ones that talk about what, I don't believe that he was the son of God per se, or I don't believe yet, but what he said was wonderful. It mm-hmm. was beautiful. We, we, I was there at one point in time, actually. It's because it's hard to argue that Jesus didn't say some incredible things that were just beautiful. Then you have those that are in other religions. So they're not considered Christian, but God is still leading them through his grace to the parts of their faith that are beautiful, closer in alignment with Christianity, even though they're a part of a different religion. And this could be a little controversial. I think it's actually best seen in The Last Battle, the final book in the Chronicles of Narnia in the person of Emmeth. But since people listening might not have read that book yet, I'm not going to give any spoilers. Or people talking on this podcast. (laughs) <laughs> that too. We're, we're, we're going to fix that. One of these days. I think we might just have a, a series of seven episodes, one on each of the books of the Chronicles of Narnia. That would be fun, actually. When you're referring to controversy, you're saying that how he's somewhat condoning this fact that there's people in other religions that are actually coming closer to Christianity, even though they don't realize it, correct? Yes. As it's, it's a Catholic, I found beautiful. Typically, Catholicism tends to be much more, if people had to argue, conservative on the spectrum of Christian faith. This is probably one of the areas where Catholicism is actually one of the more progressive of the Christian faith. We don't reject any truth, goodness, or beauty that's found in other religions. And this actually goes back right to the early church. The early church fathers, when they found truth in other religions and other schools of philosophy, they would say, oh, that's ours. Because if Christ is the Logos, if he is the truth, if Christianity is the fullness of God's revelation to mankind, then any truth we find anywhere else is rightly the property of Christians. That's very G.K. Chesterton. Atheists will sometimes use the argument against Christianity that, hey, look, a lot of your stuff that you talk about is in all these other faiths. So doesn't that just mean it's been something that we've made up? Chesterton goes, no, in fact, that tells me it's more true because if Christianity is true and the image of God is in every single one of us and there's a creator of the universe, I would expect people who might not know the full truth to get parts of it. And so you're going to see it all over the world and people who might have never even heard of Christianity but they're still going to have parts of it because the image of God is in all of us. And with regard to salvation, the Catholic belief is that God gives people grace and he invites them to respond to that. Although God can work through the sacraments, he works through the church, he's also not constrained by these things. So we hold out hope for those even outside of the bounds of the church. So concluding this fun tangent, now we got to come back to the fifth group. The fifth group is beautiful. Lewis says there's one last group, the confused. 
<laughs> he says there are a great many people who are just confused in mind and have a lot of inconsistent beliefs jumbled together. And I've got to say, I find this very, very common when you talk to people about their position. And this is why in apologetics, it's always best to ask questions because you get to discover someone's worldview and you start seeing inconsistencies in that worldview that they've taken a little bit from here and a little bit from there, a little bit from this influence. And it's all a little jumbled together and incoherent. Because of these five groups, these different categories, you've got people in Christianity leaving, people out of it coming to it, people don't even know that they're coming to it, confused people, people of other religions that are coming closer to it. You can't classify people 100% one or the other. And you can't say, well, every Christian I've met hasn't been any nicer than the non-Christians. Because you don't know if the majority of the Christians you've met have been 100% Christian, Christians going out, a blend of them all. It's just not possible. And it's unreasonable is the word he uses to do that. He says you can compare men and women en masse and dogs and cats. And you can do that because you can very clearly identify which is which. And a dog doesn't magically transform into a cat. So the bottom line is, we can't compare Christians and non-Christians en masse. Lewis says we've actually got to think about specimens we've met, real Christians, real atheists. And he says, unless we do that, we're just wasting our time. But does this mean, is there any improvement that happens? I mean, he's going so far as saying you can't compare at all, but can we still expect some improvement to be happening? I think that's the key word, improvement. That's really where he goes with the rest of this chapter. That if Christianity is true, it ought to follow that the person who becomes a Christian becomes nicer than they would be otherwise. But he begins by comparing this question to the adverts of a toothpaste brand. <laughs> we just talked about the dentist extensively last week. He really hated the dentist. <laughs> I wonder what his teeth were like. In the pictures that I've seen, they don't seem too bad, particularly for the time and particularly and for particularly England. particularly for England. <laughs> <laughs> but he says that the advertisements for White Smiles toothpaste are true. It ought to follow that any person's teeth would be better if they used it. Real clever name, White Smiles toothpaste. <laughs> I think it might have been a real brand. I'm not entirely sure. Oh, I, I assume it is. But he says that This doesn't mean that a man can't be good if he's not a Christian. Using the toothpaste analogy, it's possible for someone to have good teeth and actually never use toothpaste at all, or say that particular brand. Some people just have naturally better teeth. Lewis says that he inherited bad teeth from both of his parents. I actually remember my dentist one time when I got on the seat and opened my mouth. He sighed and went, ugh. You have your father's teeth and your mother's gums. <laughs> it's interesting, though, as I'm reading, as, as you're saying this, I'm thinking about actually uh, braces, orthodontists. Uh, we've all met those people who never needed orthodontics works because their teeth were just so straight from birth. And then you have the other individuals who there's just awful teeth. And the orthodontist still couldn't get them as good as some of the people that had perfect teeth from birth. And that's nothing to do with how good orthodontist is. It's to do with just your raw nature. But we can actually test the orthodontist, so to speak. Because yeah, statistically hold constant the variable of what you started with. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Or put in non-nerd talk, does the orthodontist <laughs> make things better? If the orthodontist makes things better, then we know that orthodontist has value. <laughs> In non-nerd talk, <laughs> I, I, everything I do is statistics, programming, math. That's my life. But anyway, <laughs> Sp- 
speak for yourself. <laughs> I'm cool. We both embrace that proudly. Anyway, Tudor form, Lewis draws some literary examples. He talks about Miss Bates and Dick Firkin. And Miss Bates is a Christian and Mr. Firkin is not. <laughs> Miss Bates. I'm more interested in meeting Mrs. Bates. Aren't we all? <laughs> David is too. <laughs> Anyway, by all outward appearances, Mr. Firkin seems to be a much nicer chap. And Jack says, Christian Miss Bates may have an unkinder tongue than unbelieving Dick Firkin. That, by itself, does not tell us whether Christianity works. The question is what Mrs. Bates' tongue would be like if she were not a Christian, and what Dick's would be like if he became one. And this is why Lewis points out it's important to look at the raw materials. And we have talked about this before in the episode on uh, psychoanalysis. We spoke quite a bit about raw materials. Yeah, that, that at the time I mentioned is one of my more favorite episodes because it challenged me to, it, it really helped me not judge people. Because I have no idea the choices, the circumstances that a person made and had to be able to make that led them to this point in time. So as much as they might be falling short of the standard that I would say they should be and far short, I have no idea what they would be before that. I have no idea what influences they had in their life. It's completely unfair for me to offer any judgment on any person. And so this chapter again reminded me of that. And he makes this point about Miss Bates and Dick Firkin. He says that natural causes and their upbringing have developed certain temperaments in them. But the real question is, what will Christianity do if those temperaments are put under Christ? He says, imagine you have these two factories and you can't judge how successful the management is just based on the output of the factories. Factory A might have vastly inferior machinery so the fact that it produces anything at all is a miracle, and it could speak highly to the manager. Whereas factory B might have the most impressive, incredible machinery in the world, and the manager is leading it or running it at a subpar rate that it's inefficiently producing output, but it's still producing more than factory A. But there's a real danger with what we've said up until now, because you might reach the conclusion that Christianity is just for jerks, for people who aren't naturally nice. And it just pulls them up to the same level as people who are naturally nice. And the converse of that is if you're a nice person, you don't need Christianity. But this is a real mistake. Whether you're naturally nice or naturally nasty, God is looking for the same thing from you. Jack says, God is waiting and watching for something that they can freely give him or refuse to give him. Will they or will they not turn to him and thus fulfill the only purpose for which they were created? Their free will is trembling inside them like the needle of a compass. But this is a needle that can choose. It can point to its true north, but it need not. Will the needle swing round and settle and point to God? Will Miss Bates and Dick offer their natures to God? The question whether the natures they offer or withhold are, at the moment, nice or nasty ones, is of secondary importance. It doesn't matter whether you are an incredible person without Christianity or a nasty person without Christianity. That's not the important part. What's so important is whatever person you are, nice or nasty, God asks that you give him your will, that you give him your being, that you wake up and say, God, use me for your kingdom. And what you're giving him is actually only what he has given you. Dick's niceness is a gift from God. And Lewis actually says that it only really becomes his own when he offers it back to God. The only things we can keep are the things we freely give to God. 
what we try and keep for ourselves is just what we are sure to lose. And that line is exceptionally important. I'm sure we're going to mention it when we go through The Great Divorce, because this is the central point of that book. And it's important to note that when we say it doesn't matter whether you're nice or good, Lewis points out it's of secondary importance. It still means it's of importance. So God, when, if you're a nasty person, you give your nasty self to God. It's not that he's going to then use your nastiness and you go out in the world and you be nasty to people and he's going to somehow make it. <laughs> Being he's nasty trans- to people for Christ. <laughs> exactly. He's going to transform it. Uh, we got to be careful not to say that you're going to continue being nasty. But the point is he's going to use you either way, whether you are good or nasty. He might have to do a little more work in a nasty one though. I think what Lewis is saying is that's the easy part though. That, that's nothing to God. He can turn a nasty person into a nice person overnight if they let him. And the upshot of all of this is that we shouldn't be surprised when we meet nasty Christians. Lewis actually says that if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense that nastier people will tend to turn to Christ. After all, this happened in Jesus' day too. In fact, it was because of Jesus doing this that many people rejected him. Yes, he hung around with tax collectors and sinners. Yes, this frustrated a lot of the religious Jewish people of the time period, Jesus' actions towards the nasty people. Lewis looks at this issue from another point of view. He couches it in terms of being rich or poor. He says that one of the dangers of having a lot of money is that you can be quite satisfied with the kinds of happiness money can give. And so you fail to realize your need for God. And natural gifts carry the same danger. If you're generally a fairly nice chap, if you're not tripped up by sex or alcohol or bad temper, you might be quite satisfied with yourself. He says that, Often people who have all these kinds of natural goodness can't be brought to realize their need for Christ until one day the natural goodness lets them down and their self-satisfaction is shattered. He says, in other words, it's hard for those who are rich, who are greatly gifted, in this sense, to enter the kingdom of heaven. In contrast, the poor learn very quickly that they need help. Here's what Lewis says. It is Christ or nothing for them. It is taking up the cross and following or else despair. They are the lost sheep. He came specially to find them. They are the awful set he goes about with. And of course, the Pharisees say still, as they said from the first, if there were anything in Christianity, those people would not be Christians. Those people would not be Christians. That's the heart of being a Pharisee. But if we want to stop judging people, We need to recognize our own brokenness. It's only when we realize how broken we are can we begin to stop judging others. And sometimes that just means looking in the right places. It's very easy for us to look at, as Lewis pointed out, you're not tripping up with sex or nervousness or drinking or bad temper. Those are very outward, easy things to recognize. But what about pride? What about arrogance? What about greed? What about envy? Do you look at the person who's got more than you and are you envious of them? What about jealousy? What a huge one. Gossip. These are ones that aren't so obvious that I know every single one of us struggles with. And if we would recognize those more, we would hold our tongue back and we would be a lot less judgmental. And really, this entire section can be either a warning or an encouragement to us. Uh, If we are those who have been given many gifts... Well, with great power comes great responsibility, as Spider-Man taught us. And Lewis actually even points out that the devil was exceptionally gifted. He was an archangel. But look what happened to him. 
But there's also an encouragement here. And I just want to quote this in full because I am convinced that there are people listening to this podcast who need to hear this section. But if you are a poor creature, poisoned by a wretched upbringing in some house full of vulgar jealousies and senseless quarrels, saddled by no choice of your own with some loathsome sexual perversion, nagged day in and day out by an inferiority complex that makes you snap at your best friends, do not despair. He knows all about it. You are one of the poor whom he blessed. He knows what a wretched machine you are trying to drive. Keep on. Do what you can. One day, perhaps in another world, but perhaps far sooner than that, he will fling it on the scrap heap and give you a new one. And then you may astonish us all, not least yourself. Amen to that. He knows all about it. That's what just hit me hard there. He knows all about it. Everyone needs to hear that. I mean, I, I, I listen to that and there's times when I lose my temper. There's times when I do stuff that I'm just like, God, Matt, why do you do that? Not to create excuses, obviously, but your circumstances, things in my life have shaped certain parts that I don't love about myself. But guess what? God knows about it and he knows that I'm trying to do what I can. And that's the case for every one of us. And what he calls us to do is to get up and start again. There's an old Japanese proverb, I think it's fall down seven times, get up eight. But even the getting up we do through his help, through his grace. Oh, that's so beautiful. Bless God for that. So as we round the corner, what can we conclude about niceness? That we got a long way to go. <laughs> but we can keep on. We can keep on. And Lewis says that we should use everything at our disposal, medicine, education, economics, to build a nice society, to help nurture nice people. But here's the thing. Christianity is about something far more important than simply niceness. Even if we build this paradise on earth where everybody's nice, if they are still turned away from God, they're still in as much need of salvation as we were when we were in a miserable world. And they might actually even now be harder to save. He says, mere improvement is not redemption. Though redemption always improves people, even here and now, and will, in the end, improve them to a degree we cannot yet imagine. Here's the clincher, though. God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. He compares them to horses. Rather than just teaching a horse to jump a little higher, to convert it into a winged creature, into a pegasus. It's going to look strange, it's going to look a little odd to begin with, with lumps on its shoulders. But when they develop into wings, this horse isn't going to just be able to jump fences. It's going to be able to fly, soar high above them all. Lewis wraps up this chapter by saying that if you want to argue against Christianity, it's very easy to find certain individuals. Certain individuals. He describes them as stupid and unsatisfactory Christians. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was trying to be a little nicer. No, no, My old non-Christian fair. self would have used those words. It's very easy to find a stupid and unsatisfactory Christian. I volunteer as tribute. <laughs> but he goes further and he says, if once you have begun to see that Christianity is on other grounds probable, you will know in your heart that this is only evading the issue. And while we can always find faults in other people, Lewis reminds us that We can't actually know another man's soul, his temptations, his opportunities, his struggles. He says, one soul in the whole of creation you do know. And it is the 
only one whose fate is placed in your hands. If there is a God, you are, in a sense, alone with him. You cannot put him off with speculations about your next-door neighbors or memories of what you have read in books. What will all that chatter and hearsay count, will you even be able to remember it, when the anesthetic fog which we call nature or the real world fades away and the presence in which you have always stood becomes palpable, immediate, and unavoidable? Someday we are each going to stand before God and it's just going to be God and ourselves. And we can't point at other people, well, I was better than this guy. You have no idea what that guy did with what he was given. And frankly, we have no idea what we've done with what we've been given. And whenever I watch any of those movies that play a what-if scenario, I'm thinking things like Butterfly Effect, Sliding Doors, I often wonder, and particularly after reading Crazy Love, I've thought about this more, what would my life look like and what would my impact be if I really lived this stuff, if I really lived out what I claimed to believe? To finish on that note, When we finish season one of this podcast, when we reach the end of mere Christianity and we start The Great Divorce, we're going to shake up our format a little bit, and I won't be offering podcast reviews anymore. But we now have today's episode and just one more. So here we go. The Council of Trent. Trent Horn is probably my favorite present-day apologist. Whether he's speaking on atheism, pro-life issues, or claims of Christianity, he always does so in a calm and clear manner. He's also quite a nerd who loves comic books, which speaks very highly to his moral character. I chose to review the Council of Trent this week because in a recent episode he quoted from this chapter of Mere Christianity about Christians being nice or nasty. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. In Friends, David sent me a text this week that said he wants to ease out of these iTunes reviews and he wants to ease me into movie reviews. I texted him back and I said, David, I'm trying to make sure I don't watch TV ever because I feel like there's better uses of time. Now he's trying to encourage me to watch a movie every single week. I think it would really help you to communicate the gospel to a culture if you knew some of the core movies that have shaped today's society. Well, I did watch a movie recently with my roommate uh, called Upgrade. I don't think I've seen that. It's actually fantastic. If anyone follows Elon Musk, he's talked about how we're going to keep up with AI uh, in the future. And he's discussed trying to create this company, I believe, called like Neuralink, which is where you have a blend between a human and AI and you put a chip in you. And that chip enhances you as a human, allowing you to somewhat keep up with artificial intelligence, which can think much more rationally than ourselves potentially down the road. And of course, the movie has upgrades the human to that and has examples of ways that that chip could overtake you and start controlling you. And But it was a, a really good movie with an ending that was not what you would expect, actually, which is what made it really fascinating. See, there you go. You've already done your first review. I'm looking forward to this. <laughs> <laughs> and related to the next season when we're going to be going through The Great Divorce. Please send us a selfie with you and your copy of The Great Divorce and tag us at Pints with Jack. So until next time, when we are going to be doing the final chapter of Mere Christianity. Here we go. Further up. And further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.